Wow. Let's pray, friends. Father, thank you for the gift of your word to us. Thank you for the gifts of your creation that we get to use. Give us wisdom this day as we think about how you call us to be. Amen. So here we are. It's harvest time again. And even in our relatively urban economy, I'm pleased to report that in the Vicarage Garden this year, we have managed to grow raspberries, gooseberries, rhubarb, tomatoes, courgettes, potatoes, strawberries, and to a limited extent, cabbages. We've harvested chestnuts and blackberries from surrounding lands. The beans didn't make it past the slugs. And I know across the congregation there are others that have grown a wider variety of crops. And I, for one, marvel at the way that night and day, whether I sleep or get up, I do normally get up, so the seeds sprout and grow, though I know not how. So we give thanks to God today for the variety of foods that we can grow. But also we give thanks for that there are foods in the shops, that the supply chain works, which means we can buy a vast array of foods whenever we go to the shops, as long as we don't all panic and stockpile. In these days, we need to recognise, though, the fragility of that supply chain. Fast-moving consumer goods are just that, fast-moving. And we've all heard the warnings about the consequences of delays to trucks coming in from Europe. Whether they become true or not is a different matter. But then I worry sometimes about our consumerist drive for cheap food. When I wander the aisles of our local supermarket and find that I cannot actually buy apples grown in Kent, I begin to worry. I could get apples from South Africa and Chile. I can add green beans from Kenya into my basket. I could add blueberries from Peru. Should I wish? And of course, bananas from Costa Rica for only a pound. And it's then that I notice how clearly we live in a global economy and our buying choices have far-reaching consequences. Now, there are, of course, increasing hopes from consumers for British-grown and produced products. I point you to the advertising of Aldi, for instance. That increasing demand has driven an intensification of farming in recent years. Earlier this month, there was a report known as the State of Nature. It was produced by 70 partner organisations, including uh, the RSPB, Natural England, Woodland Trust, Botanic Gardeners of Kew and Edinburgh, and so on and so on. And in that study, they recognised that the area of crops in the UK treated with pesticides has risen by 53% in 20 years, 1990 to 2010. The study cited the intensification of agriculture as the key driver to species loss. While this, of course, has led to greater food production, it has also had a dramatic impact on farmland biodiversity. We're told that 26%, one in four of every type of mammal in the UK is facing extinction. 15%, one in seven of every plant species is threatened with extinction. 
41% of the 7,000 species studied by this climate, uh, by this State of Nature report, have experienced decline since 1970, in less than 50 years. The report claims this, that driving, climate change is driving widespread changes in the abundance, distribution and ecology in the UK's wildlife and will continue to do so for decades or even centuries to come. Apparently in the UK, many species, including birds, butterflies, moths and dragonflies, have shifted their range north over the past four decades, moving on average 12 and a half miles per decade. That's 20 kilometres to those of you under 20. That's 50 miles in 40 years. The average range, geographic range, has moved north as a result of rising average UK temperatures, which have risen nearly one degree since the 1980s, with, of course, widespread impact on nature evident already. And we turn to look at sea level. You probably can't see that, but don't worry. When we turn to look at sea level, sea level has risen around the UK from its historic norm in 1900 by 15.4 centimetres. It's kind of that much. That's obviously not every day. Well, it is every day, but it's that, it's that baseline average. And the Met Office, our own Met Office, predicts, uh, as of last November, that by 2100, so in 80 years' time, the sea level will have risen around the UK by 1.1 metre from today's level. That's about that much. The average sea level will rise. So, for example, the community of Fairbourne in West Wales is likely to be lost to the sea in the next 40 years. Now, let me just have a little look in at this place. Fairbourne was created by none other than Arthur McDougall of Rankhovis McDougall fame. Uh, Millers, fill, um, flour millers. It was uh, effectively a way of showing off how profitable his flour milling business was, was to create a village where there had been no village in about 1850. Think Sanditon, if you've been watching that on ITV. Um, a new community by the sea. <coughs> no Welshman had chosen to settle there. Had it not become a habitation, then I'm sure the managed retreat from the land that the present local council proposes will not at all be controversial. It's merely the fact that there's 450 houses that now sit below sea level, and will sit below sea level by at least a metre in 80 years' time. That would not be controversial if it were not for the houses. But the problem of sea level rises is not at all peculiar to the UK. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change predicts an increase of... 0.93 metres by 2100, 2100, whatever that is. So that's slightly different to the UK's um, Met Office, but that's across the world. World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report 19, uh, 2019, that's this year, models that half a metre rise by 2050 shows 800 million people needing to find a new home. 800 million people. That's about 10% of the world's population. That includes 70% of Europe's largest cities, 19 African cities, each with populations over a million people, 78 million Chinese living in low-elevation cities, and that number grows 3% every year as we move towards an increasing urbanisation. That 0.5-metre change in sea level that they've modelled would result in a loss of 11% of the land of Bangladesh. 
displacing as many as 15 million people only in that one country. Beyond that, the World Bank recognises and predicts climate change will force the permanent relocation of 86 million people from sub-Saharan Africa, 40 million people in South Asia, 17 million people in Latin America, by 2050, 30 years from now. Climate refugees will become a huge part of the refugee population. That's what we're facing, friends. Now, these are changes that we can see, that we can measure in our environment, and I know that the difficulty comes as we look to ascribing causes and solutions, because it's just not that simple. Especially with solutions, since there has to be questions as to what solutions we want. I mean, for example, that, that, that Welsh village, we could be saved with more money spent on sea defences, uh, with, with pumping mechanisms. I mean, we managed to pump um, 47 million litres of water every day out of the London underground to keep that working. And by the way, that's enough water to fill one Olympic-sized swimming pool every 75 minutes. Less than the length of this service this morning will be filled with water. We'll take the time to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool just from the London Underground to keep that going every hour, every, 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 every hour and a quarter. Seven, 47 million litres of water. So pumping is possible. Pumping water is possible where there's a political and an economic will. But for 450 houses, is there actually that will? Probably not. Similarly, I'm left asking, is it such a huge problem that there is less biodiversity now than there used to be? It probably is, but that's no, there's no immediate obvious answer. And if, if, could we go back even if we wanted to, to greater biodiversity? Once something's lost, it's lost, surely. And so with that in mind, we come to our text, which, um, depending on which version of Rotas we've been reading, um, is either Deuteronomy 6 or Deuteronomy 8, chapters, verses 10 to 14, 10 to 18. Um, and I've been looking at Deuteronomy 8. So apologies. Um, we've had a multiplicity of emails over the, over the... Anyway, here we are. So this is what Deuteronomy 8 says, which is only two chapters on from what you did have, which is very similar. When you've eaten and are satisfied... Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his decrees, and his laws that I'm going giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be hardened. Your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you have more than enough to eat, your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord. Now, let's just set this in context. Deuteronomy is presented to us as on the lips largely of Moses, as instructions from Moses to the people as they're about to enter the promised land. So they've had their 40 years in the wilderness. They've had their dependency on the Lord for manna, for food, for water. 
And now they're going into a land flowing with milk and honey. And of course the dangers are there, aren't they? That they fill their boots with good things, as it were, and they forget that it's God that gave it to them. But we see, so we see a clear warning then to remember the Lord. We see clarity about the risk that rising material prosperity has on our spiritual lives. Put it this way, if you like. When I have no food, it's easy to pray. When my money has run out and the cupboards are bare, then getting food consumes most of my thinking and those of faith will ask for the Lord's provision and will ask the Lord's people for his provision, hence food bank. But when I have plenty, when I have money in the bank and food in the cupboard, then I have no need to pray for the provision of food and so perhaps less need to pray overall. And I'm at risk as per the prediction of having a heart that is proud, that forgets the Lord our God. So I'm not driven to my knees, but I can still choose to pray. 90% of people, I'm told, will pray in a crisis. God wants us to pray even when we're not in a crisis. And many people would say, indeed, that changes happening around the world do amount to a crisis, a climate emergency, if you like. Yeah, the basic science is reasonable. Plants produce oxygen from carbon dioxide in the air. That's photosynthesis. Ask any GCSE teenager. Um, Carbon dioxide is released, along with other pollutants, as we burn fossil fuels, fuels such as gas, oil, uh, coal. um, And we've been doing that since the Industrial Revolution. Add to that, the other producer of oxygen is is plankton, phytoplankton in the world's oceans. And when our plastic ends up covering some of the surface of the world's oceans, that reduces the amount of plankton that there are and so reduces the... because there's less light in the ocean surface. So reduces the number, the amount of oxygen that is created across this world. So the balance of oxygen producers and carbon dioxide consumers is out of kilter and we need oxygen to live. If we don't get it right, we will die. But whether or not you accept the conclusions around what to do around the science, we need to ask ourselves, how is it okay for us to produce and dispose of plastic? Oh, hang on, climate, climate change, climate emergency, they go emissions, trees cut down, that's looking up through the ocean. Um, Here we go. We need to ask ourselves, how is it okay for us to produce and dispose of single-use plastic that never truly biodegrades? We're told that a single-use plastic bottle, such as that, I think that's a bottle anyway, that one is certainly, takes 450 years to degrade. But that only means it degrades to the point where the fragments are microscopic. It doesn't actually go away. Now, you will not even be remembered in 450 years. But the bottle that you use once, you throw away, you put in a litter bin that then gets blown out of it and ends up in the sea, that will last far longer than even the memory of you. How is that right? How is that a good use 
of our life on this earth. So I ask you, will you pledge to use less plastic? We do have a problem because even recycling takes energy. So could we reduce, could we reuse before we recycle? want to see you a recent picture uh, of a vicarage shop. The nice man from Tesco's delivered it to our door. And of course, we went bagless. We're trying to do our bit to save the world. So it, it's unpacked from its crates, and here it is. Every single item is encased in plastic. And I challenge, I struggle with that. And since then, since that was, picture was taken, probably May time, um, I've started using our local greengrocers a bit more. I've started walking more within the parish. But yes, I'm flying to India next week. Yes, for the purposes of evangelism, discipleship, and I will, for the first time, pay into a carbon offsetting scheme for that flight. So remembering. We won't be remembered in 450 years, but the Lord remembers us. We're called to remember the Lord's goodness. We're called to remember that it is the Lord who gives us health, who gives us a harvest, who gives us skills and talents. And here is the next bit of that passage. Let me read it on for you. It's not all on the screen. God led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty, waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that you, in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth, and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to his ancestors as it, is, as it is today. We are to remember, and in the words that we use on Ash Wednesday, we are to remember that we are but dust, and to dust we shall return. We need to remember the goodness of God. But actually, we need to do something as well. How might we live more simply that others might simply live? Do we need that new car? Do we need that holiday abroad? Could we make that piece of clothing last a bit longer? Do we need to eat meat? Or is it a luxury we can go without? Should we try saying grace a bit more honestly? You know, thank you God for the cooks who cooked this food today and thank you God for the pig that lost its life for our dinner. Should we say that kind of thing, grace, a bit more honestly? Remember that we are intimately tied to food and water, for without it we will die. It's not surprising that the Israelites were commanded to be festive three times a year, and two of those were to do with crops growing. Here's what it says in Exodus 23. You're to celebrate a festival three times a year. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. Celebrate the festival of harvest. And celebrate the festival of ingathering. Now, unleavened bread is about Passover. It's about that time when they remembered that they left Egypt in a hurry because the angel of death had passed over their, the houses of the Israelites but had killed the firstborn 
of everybody in Egypt. Not surprising, that gets on the remembrance list. But in Exodus 23, we have it that the other two times we're supposed to celebrate are food-based. The first fruits of the crops and the end of the year when we gather in the crops. So effectively, we are celebrating the festival of ingathering today. It's not harvest. Go home and tell that to your auntie. Doesn't really work, does it? We all think it's harvest. Um, but effectively, we're at that point of the year where we're gathering in all our crops. You dig your potatoes up at this time of year, don't you? And interestingly, that last phrase, three times a year, all the men are to appear before me, before the sovereign Lord. And I've tried, looked at every version, and every version has it as men. And I don't quite know what to make of that. But anyway, there you go. Those are the three times that the Israelites were told to, to, to what? To celebrate. Celebrate a festival to me. And twice it's about food and about harvest. And we've perhaps lost track of that when we can go to Sainsbury's or Tesco's or Asda or the co-op and buy out of season from across the world. Because we have to remember that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And if we're going to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, and if the earth is the Lord's, then actually loving God comes down to loving his stuff. It's a little bit like that kind of teenager's angst, isn't it? Love me, love my bedroom. Although the bedroom is usually said like that usually when the bedroom's a mess, isn't it? But actually, we're called to love God. And if we love God, we love his creation. We love the world that he's put us in. And all who live in it. Because there is not just a, a dimension to this about, you know, some people, you know, that we, that we say climate change is somehow wrong. There's a dimension to this that is something about actually the way that we're living on this earth is damaging other people around us and other people in other countries that perhaps we don't see so much. And if we're going to recognize that we're all made in the image of God, then actually we need to love God by loving his earth. It's good for the people whom he created in his image. It's good for us. It's good for the gospel too. For who will listen to us when it comes to the gospel and evangelism if we don't love the earth that we've been put in. Certainly not our young people who seem to be increasingly aware of this challenge. Now, I want to end with something very practical. Christmas is coming. How are you going to do things differently this year? Could you commit to at least signing the group Christmas card that we do around church and not then sending individual cards to everybody else around the church? Could you not buy any Christmas crackers? <gasps> but they're full of bits of plastic made in China that will end up being shipped back to China, if you're not careful, as our waste. Do we need Christmas crackers? And as for wrapping paper, that metallic-y stuff you can't recycle. Don't buy it. Could you use brown paper? Or nothing? Do your presents need to be wrapped up? Do you need to give presents? Here, 
is one of those kind of internet things I found. The ethical hierarchy of gift purchasing. Take it with a bit of a pinch of salt, friends, but notice the suggestions is about giving memories, giving up your time, upcycling, recycling, re repurposing stuff you already have, buying stuff from places where, like uh, antique shops, buying on eBay. Could you make your own Christmas presents? If you're going to buy, could you buy ethically? Could you buy fair-tradedly? And if you're completely stuck, yeah, buy as a last resort down here. But notice all these other options you've got with how you might express your love for somebody at Christmas. We don't have to run out and buy lots and lots of stuff. Honest. We don't. Because we need to bring change. I'm hoping that church council on Tuesday will commit to us becoming an eco-church, to, to reducing our carbon footprint as a community. I'd love to see us having church lunches where we're not struggling to find something for a vegetarian to eat, but that we're just naturally vegetarian in our gathered communities. We don't need to eat meat. Okay, I get the challenge that, you know, you can't do anything else with Welsh hills except put sheep on them. Well, go and buy Welsh sheep then. But don't use that as an excuse to buy factory farm chicken at £2.50. It doesn't work, friends. Because we're called, there you go, to love the Lord and love the Lord's earth. And I'm sorry if I've given you a bit of a downer today. Let's just be quiet and pray. Father, I'm saddened that we need food banks in this country. That our government doesn't quite see fit to make benefits appropriate. But thank you for the response of your people, of many others across this nation that voluntarily give food out of the plenty they have. Father, forgive us our consumerist tendencies. Give us hearts of compassion. Soften our hearts, Lord, we pray. Help us to remember your provision. Help us to remember that reality that you are the one that gives us health. You are the one that gives us life. You are the one that gives us the resources that we have to live on this earth. Give us wisdom that we might be wise stewards. Amen.